I'd like to open with a few verses. Then we're going to jump right into the lesson. These, uh, no need to turn there unless you'd like. It's Psalm 143, <coughs> verses. Thanks, Megan. Appreciate that. Uh, verses 8 through 10. And this is the NIV. Seems very fitting. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go. For to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. For I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. And may your good spirit lead me on level ground. I've been a Christian a better part of 61 years, and the significance of the resurrection has always just sort of eluded me, that it would take hold of my heart and my spirit, and I would realize that it's the cornerstone of the Christian ending. So my hope this morning is that we are able together to accomplish that, that we get a more solid understanding of why Christ rising from the so important. I mean, he was crucified for our sins, correct? And by his crucifixion, he paid the penalty. Good morning. This is for foundations. Yeah, Clint. Yeah. Clint's just not feeling well, so he asked me to fill in. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, no, no problem at all. I'm not a normal person. I promise, Clint, I would try to come every Sunday that I could. Well, we're glad you're glad here. You're here. Um, yeah, he's just not feeling well. Anyway, back to uh, we we know he paid for the penalty for our sin through the crucifixion. Why is the resurrection so important? And that's what we're going to study, and that's what we hope to take away with us today. Now. God's story, God's plan, is his truth. It's not ours. It's up to us to seek it, to receive it from him, and understand it as truth. So let's unfold God's word and reflect now upon what our Christian ancestors have left behind for us through the, the written word. So we're asking the Holy Spirit to bring understanding so we may love him more dearly and follow him more closely. Glorify his name for all he is and all that he has accomplished for us. So in making a distinction beyond the obvious crucifixion and resurrection, death and life, what's your preference out of the next two? Forgiveness of all sin that you've committed well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? How about this? Forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I like, too. I much prefer that one. And just in short, I'm going to throw out, that's part of what the resurrection does for us. For by the crucifixion, the penalty was paid. But in the resurrection, 
we are justified. Have you studied justification in this course yet? Justification, uh, real quickly, in brief, is a legal term that's saying you've been tried and found innocent from this forward. From this point forward, you are righteous in my sight. The judge releases you, right? And we know that God is our almighty judge. He releases us, and we're never tried for that again, for that sentence that we are under, that environment. <clears throat> that's justification. So that's another little tidbit, what the resurrection does for us. So beyond that, when we believe and accept Christ in faith and follow him as a disciple, we're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? What happens next? The adoption as his child. How important is that? What if there was no difference between the follower of Buddha and Buddha? There's no distinction, no significance, no relationship, no union. Father, daughter, father, son, not a part of his family, and then suddenly his child to receive love every day throughout the day. Direction, kindness. Compassion. Embrace. That's our God. It's not like this in the Grand Canyon. You're there and then you're not. When I think about the Grand Canyon and the Grandeur, I also think about like uh, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, and orbit in the Earth, looking, having the advantage point, the perspective of seeing Earth and its oceans and continents and realizing what a stranger you are now that you've left your planet. But even that pales in comparison, that perspective. Because when I think of Melody, Father, I think of you think it's embrace. And the more we learn about our Father and how much He loves us and what He's done, and that perfect relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our Heavenly Father, you realize that's a relationship that we're invited into. Obviously, it blows me away, and that's what I'd like to do for you today to show you and let the Lord do that for you today. Okay. So, three points today that I'd like to leave you with. God's plan, Christ's incarnation, death and resurrection, and then point three, what it means for us.
We have some verses that, uh, to look into. Before we do that, let's uh, read a little bit from the lesson. If you've ever lost a loved one, if you've ever had to stand by the graveside full of sorrow and watch the casket being lowered into the ground, a casket containing your loved one, you know what a terrible enemy death is, that separation. <coughs> and if the Lord does not come for us before we die, each one of us will have to pass through death. But the Bible says, it is appointed unto men, but as the Bible says, it is appointed unto men once to die. But we don't have to fear death if we have trusted Christ our Savior. And Jesus Christ has conquered death. And the Bible said he has broken the power of death and brought us everlasting life through the gospel. This word gospel means good news. And we'll turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 here shortly. And uh, let's turn now. To uh, a few verses. First Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Would you like to read that for us? You would just go right ahead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Well, we could drop the mic at that point. That pretty much nails it, doesn't it? But there's more evidence, and we can look at it. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then, <coughs> without the cornerstone, is just like any other religion. It's the only religion where the Savior, the teacher, God's Son, exists and God's son resurrected from death. So it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. So let's uh, put that up there. Cornerstone. Who knows what a cornerstone is? It's also known as keystone. It goes back to the Freemasons and last son they put in. <clears throat> Held the structure together because they didn't use mortar or cement or anything like that. Wow, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. So, the idea let's just use the idea of an arch. The top center block. Right. So, they're building the arch. And what's going to hold that? You know, your physics lesson I won't enter into. But what's really going to hold the weight? of all the upper structure. We can understand the vertical, but when we start to turn horizontal, it's totally different. Well, an angled block allows <coughs> it to stand. And Christ is resurrection, is the cornerstone, the keystone to Christian faith. Okay. Uh, John 14, 19. 
Thank you, Mark. Great job. In a little while, the Lord will no longer, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Very important verse. So Jesus himself said, You're not, I'm going to be gone, but I will return. So Jesus predicted his resurrection. If Jesus said it, then most certainly it occurred. So not only is it the cornerstone, but it is from the heart of Christ. And what do we know about Christ? That he was on earth to glorify the Father. And that he is part of the Trinity. So if we understand the depth, the significance of the Trinity, we understand that this must be truth. It comes from our Savior. And he only repeated what his Heavenly Father told him. Jesus wants you to know this information today because the Heavenly Father told him. <coughs> That's where I'm going with this. Okay? Okay. So our future is safe and secure due to the resurrection. He says, I will not leave you orphaned. Right? We spoke earlier about being adopted. All right. John 5, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this. And I'll stop there for a long pause because that stands on its own, what I've read. For the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. He says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus has life, authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. But do not be astonished at this, he says. I find that really interesting. A really interesting phrase that pulls me in and wants me to study more. Why did Jesus Use that as a segue. Interesting. Maybe it's because of what follows, but certainly it's significant because of what precedes it. Okay. If, uh, if you were granted the power of life, well, what would that mean? The Greeks thought that others had the power of life, that they would forever. But what words do we use to describe that? 
Yeah, more word, word of good. God with little g. <laughs> yeah. Little g. Yeah, exactly. But immortal is where I'm going. And deity is another word. Deity is someone elevated way above our plane of existence. Over much more powerful than we are. Romans 1 4. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in many places here, we are reading about the resurrection and that Jesus is the son of God. We just read that he was the son of man as well. So he is a son of man, representative of, over all men is what that means. Uh, all humankind, all men and women, all adults and all children. As son of God, he is God's representative in creation. But he is declared by his resurrection to be the son of God. What that means is as the gospel is the good news, the resurrection must be included when the gospel is spoken. So when you share Christ, be sure that you say that he is here with you now. He is in our presence. So important. And it differentiates Christianity from all other religions in the world. Where is Buddha today? No one knows. He's returned to dust from which he came. Where's Confucius with all his fancy sayings? And some good, very good sayings. But where is he today? But where is Jesus Christ? Alive. He's alive. Yeah. <laughs> alive, resurrected. Sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Okay. Let's return to the... Uh, do a time check. Have I got the time? Let's see if this clock's right. So 9.10. The arms on that clock are so fancy, I can't even read it. Oh, no one's turned it back. That's why. All right. So, uh, does Clint usually release you about 8.45, uh, 9.45? Mm -hmm. 9.50? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll do the same. We'll see. <laughs> okay. I'd also like to tell you, we don't have to turn there, but uh, Romans 4, 24 through 25 uh, shows that Christ was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. So this is a repeat of something that I've already stated. Delivered up for our sins, paid the penalty, and raised for our justification. So it's not just a clean start. Right? You, it's not just a clean slate. <clears throat> he has forgiven us for all sin. Today's sin, tomorrow's sin, as well as the past. And we're legally declared not guilty of sin. 
the justification piece. So that's the Romans 4, 24 through 25. And quickly, Hebrews 7, 25. He's our indestructible priest. Our priest forever. Please write this verse reference down and look at it later. If you're not familiar with it, very important. And because he continues forever. He's part of the permanent priesthood. And if you remember, included in this passage as in the order of Melchizedek. You remember who Melchizedek was? Who Abraham met? He was a priest. Uh, now, Levites didn't exist in the days of Abraham. <coughs> Jacob hadn't been born and hadn't born the, the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel. So this is the first, Melchizedek is the first reference we have in Scripture of someone who was a mediator. In the Bible, we don't know where he came from. We don't know when he was born, which is very unusual because genealogy is very important in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Very important and very important in Matthew and Luke as well. We don't know where he came from, when he was born, and we don't know when he passed. You get that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus as in the order of Melchizedek. In that pattern, Christ lives forever. As your intercessor, priest, delivering the word. Preachers today deliver the word. But as your intercessor, he is interceding for you between the Holy Spirit and the Heavenly Father. So the Holy Spirit is mingling, dwelling in you. We are called in John 15 to abide in Christ, correct? And the Holy Spirit helps us by uttering unto our Lord our groanings, our deepest feelings, our deepest needs, our deepest questions, our searchings about who we are and why we're here. And then Jesus is our intercessor. To our Heavenly Father communicates as well. All right, pretty heavy stuff, pretty wonderful stuff. Uh, so I've got a little bit of seminary in me. <laughs> I, I uh, may be delivering uh, right, you know, right to it. You know, I love to get right to it. You know, let y'all take it from there. Ask questions, okay? If I'm not clear. Please ask questions. As I give you these scripture references, please write them down and read them later because this is God's word. I'm just trying to illuminate for you, direct you to scripture. And if you want some, the uh, would like to have these scripture references in addition to the lesson, uh, this is my email address. because John Bassett has already taken the Comcast. Okay. All right. Back to the lesson. Crucified and buried. Wow. Uh, 
Have you ever researched crucifixion? The horrible way that the Romans put Jesus to, to death. Apparently, I'm sorry, I'm getting interrupted. Apparently, uh, the Romans, um, they had a pretty strict code, but um, crucifixion was only reserved for non-residents. They did not crucify the residents, no matter how horrible. Of Rome? They could still have a death sentence, but did not crucify them. They would usually behead them with a sword or an axe if, if they had a death sentence, but never crucifixion. So any crucifixions that were done in Rome was an outsider. So that means that Jesus was an outsider and so was Barabbas. They're not from that area. Whew, what, a, what an opening. They just want to make an example out of people who came into their, you know, their lovely country. Like, this is what happens if you, um, you know, commit a crime so heinous and it was to deter people coming through to not, you know, to basically toe the line. Okay. So a crucifixion... Uh, that, you know, that they had zero tolerance for, for heinous crimes, mm -hmm. or they would... Sounds know. like Singapore, I think, they're that particular. Right. Yeah. So... Um, Sorry. That's okay. No, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to invite you to do. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you. Um, so the Persians invented crucifixion, and it was passed down in the Carth... from Carth... It was passed to the Romans. But the Romans perfected it, according to uh, my reading, my study. <coughs> and, uh, and it said that the Romans had a way of perfecting just about everything. And it's one reason that they were successful. So everything about crucifixion then was meant to be a punishment. But not just a punishment, but a sign. Like you just said about right. Roman citizens. It was meant to be a sign, a warning. And uh, we can read, once Jerusalem had fallen uh, between, well, after AD 70 or, or AD 70. don't exactly remember. I know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, so it's probably that. Year. The enemies of Rome were all crucified along the roadway. So you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of crosses and men and possibly women, I don't know, hanging on crosses. So it was a sign and a symbol. You come against Rome, and this is what's going to happen. So let's read a little bit about it. Uh, did everyone get a chance to read the lesson? Okay. So you, you know some of the detail here. So I'd like to deliver just a little more detail to you. And uh, this is being pulled from Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There are two volumes of this book. And uh, it's really good. It's very studious academic, uh, not deep, but extremely thorough. Would you agree? Yeah. So you're going to get a lot of history if you have this book. Discoverbooks.com, thriftbooks.com, 
Uh, you can buy these really inexpensive. You can also download a PDF version or a text version, EPUB version, Kindle version of volumes one and two. You just need to surf for it on the net or email me and I'll send you the link. But a very well-known, well-respected individual, Josh McDowell. So, uh, just to throw more uh, into the fire, the pain of your concept of crucifixion, this is real important for you to understand what Christ endured. Let's look at a vivid description. And I'm reading, uh, page 205 from volume one says, the unnatural position made every movement of the crucified victim painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons from the scourging that the crucified victim would receive prior to his crucifixion throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. What does that mean? Deborah. Surcharge blood? I don't have a clue. And while each variety of misery went on gradually, it increased gradually. There was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. <coughs> I guess because they were losing so much blood. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement this deep, desperate anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. Wow. That they invited death. Um, that's page 205 of volume 1. Page 206, uh, a doctor, a physiologist, highly revered from the University of D Dublin, relates his view on the physical cause of Christ's death. Your lesson points to suffocation, which is the, the point. It is suffocation. But he takes a long discourse. He provides a long discourse on how this could have happened. And I'm going to cut to the chase here. Uh, that it indeed was suffocation. That as the victim had the ability to raise or elevate their body from the nails through their feet, over time and loss of energy and loss of hope, and an ability to hold themselves up in that position for long due to the pain in their legs, they would eventually sag back down that cross. And the bearing of their arms, the weight of their arms, their shoulder, their head, uh, caused their lungs to compress so that they could breathe less. My 
much less the fact that their lungs are filling with blood. And with, I assume, water, due to the inability over time to breathe effectively. And so that by the time that, as was the custom of the Sabbath, that no man, no one hang, as crucified during the Sabbath, the Jews requested that the Romans uh, assure that the men were no longer hanging. So that required that they die before the Sabbath. And so that's where the custom of breaking the victim's legs came from, that it would accelerate the process. And when they came to Jesus, have to say why. I do agree up on this. Please. Reason, well, the reason they broke their legs, like you said, was for them to um, to die quicker. But the Roman guards were were not allowed to leave the corpses, and sometimes it would, I mean, the accused, and it would sometimes it would take them two or three days to die like this. So they would have to. Some of them would break their legs because they were impatient and they wanted to go home, and some of them would do it because of the Sabbath. So they couldn't push themselves back up. Actually, absolutely gruesome, terrible way to die. And the Romans had perfected the process. So in your reading, what did you read as far as to assure, to confirm that Jesus Christ was dead? What did you read? Anybody? They put a spear in the side. Yeah. Another officer came through and thrust that spear, tradition says, into his heart, into that cavity. Okay. There's five reasons uh, why someone would die due to uh, that kind of injury. And I'm going to cut to the chase. A copious flow of blood succeeded by a copious flow of water was different from a copious flow of water followed by a copious flow of blood. And then the first, second, and third are variations. No blood, really, uh, just blood, just water, from what I remember from reading what's in front of me. <coughs> but the fifth reason, a copious flow of blood succeeded or followed by a copious flow of water follows the wound. Maddie, this is just going to get gruesome. I apologize, but I'm, I'm sure you're used to it. And you're, you're old. Death by crucifixion causes a condition of blood in the lungs similar to that produced by drowning. And a term or condition called S-T-R-Y-C-H-N-I-A, which I really have a hard time not saying China. It's not China. It's Strychnia. It sounds Russian. Now, the fourth cause of where water is, uh, precedes blood would occur in a crucified person who had previously to crucifixion suffered from pleuritic effusion. Can you help me out? That's just like water building up in the world. Okay. And the fifth case would occur in a crucified person who had already died upon the cross. But what's interesting is this. Oh, I've got everything but an eraser. Okay. 
there's a theory backed up by medical evidence that your Lord died. The one that took his life So what I'm saying is, we know that Jesus released life, his life, right? But medically speaking, they say this is the reason that he actually died. Physiological, a rupture of the heart. Do you find that interesting? Because when we point, look back at Genesis, and we see God's heart to create such a beautiful universe, and to record it for us as if it's an orchestration, an orchestra developing in front of our very eyes. <coughs> We're seeing God's love demonstrated in creation. And then we see the fellowship of man and woman, that union with God when God would come to visit them in Eden. And they are at peace and solitude. But then we have, of course, the temptation and the fall of human race. So they have separated themselves from God's love. Separ being separated from God's love, to me, reflects directly rupture of the heart. What happened to Jesus on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sin? What's the verse that describes his relationship with his father at that time? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Have you done any reading about that? Please do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one, Son of God, became Son of Man. Still Son of God, but your representative while representing God. <coughs> God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. As the one who received the penalty, all our penalty, for our sin. Our God is holy and cannot bear or tolerate the presence of sin before him. It's completely incompatible with his nature. What a downer this lesson could be. <laughs> but we'll finish well. And actually, we, in all due respect, it breaks us. It turns our hearts on right. Humbles us. This, this knowledge causes us to revere and respect him all that more. So Christ hanging on the cross experiences complete separation from the Heavenly Father for the first time in his entire existence. And if we remember, God has no timeline. He has no beginning and he has no end. So this is the first time in the Trinity 
fact, one of the three was separated from that love, that nourishment, that perfect union that they have always known. How devastating would that be? <coughs> Maybe someone in this room has been unfortunate and experienced total separation from their parents. That's how it might be. So, moving on. <coughs> so much more. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph. This tomb had been constructed by the rich man for himself, and he had a large round stone design to cover the opening to the tomb so that it would forever remain secure. And this tomb was sealed by request of the Pharisees so that the Pharisees could show evidence that Jesus was still in that tomb so none of the disciples could claim on their own that he wasn't there. That there was some kind of victory over the Pharisees' plan. I find that in itself, by itself, very interesting. We know that on the third day, just before daylight, that Jesus rose from the dead. This is page two. That there was a great earthquake. And the Bible says that the Roman soldiers shook with fear. They fell, became as dead men. But it was the women who actually came to the tomb to apply spices. They were the first to come to the tomb. And they witnessed this, that the stone had been rolled away. And they were greeted by an the angel who told them that Jesus had arisen. So let's look at evidence that the tomb was empty. Let's look in who recorded it and what they had to say. Well, let's look first at the mere fact that the place Roman guards to protect the tomb indicated that they were determined to keep that body behind the stone. That for somehow they feared that this wouldn't end well for them. Is that because they knew the truth, but denied it? What if they had just resealed the tomb? The Roman soldiers came back and told the high priest what had occurred. Well, why was it a big deal that they didn't think to go back and just roll that stone back and just reseal the tomb and just say that the body was still back there. Doesn't that make sense to you in some kind of perfect crime scenario that, oops, well, let's just redo that. No one will ever know. I never thought of that until my reading. I just find that very interesting. Um, second, there is something more conclusive than the officials in action. It's the actions of several wit eyewitnesses. The first to see and report the empty tomb were the women with the spices. <coughs> John and Peter were the next to see that Jesus was gone. When they had heard the story from the women, they raced to the tomb. And at first, John stood outside and peered in as the more, more bold Peter raced past him and went inside. What did he find when he raced inside? The shroud, burial shroud. The wrappings, the linens, 
and the covering, the face covering. If you were robbing the tomb, you, uh, any human being, were physically robbing that tomb, you'd overcome Roman, well-armed Roman guards. Maybe a, a mob. All right? That's going to make a lot of noise. Much less the fact than how long it would take you to roll that stone away up that incline. Okay? <clears throat> and get it to stay there. So you could run into the tomb and take that body. Would you, would you, under any circumstance, unwrap that three-day-old body with spices to cover the stench? Or would you just run out without body cover? Wouldn't you do that? I mean, who wouldn't do that? But there the linens were. To me, that's just even more evidence. Yeah, but they weren't touched. They were in the exact same position they were in. I think that's yeah. why the soldiers probably ran because they were, number one, I told you, the Roman guard did not leave. They did not leave their post. Their post. Yeah. And so there was no way anybody could have got past them. The fact that they were afraid meant that they knew what, what was going on because that was routine. They had stood by how many corpses? Why are you scared of this one? And we're under a no, penalty of death. No, nobody could get past them, and those, yeah. those shrouds were untouched. No so, one touched them. So wouldn't you think at least the linens would be half on the stone table and half on the ground? Or completely on the ground? But instead, here they are, as you said. And the face covering was actually rolled up. Folded or rolled up. That's pretty interesting, too. So just more evidence. <coughs> so we have disciples as eyewitnesses we have friends of Jesus who loved him dearly as eyewitnesses we have the Roman soldiers who ran back to the high priest as evidence a, a third strong piece of evidence that the tomb was empty is the reaction of the authorities when the guards reported the events in the garden they wanted to destroy the credibility and influence of Jesus these high priests Therefore, they surely would have been foolish to spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body if Jesus were still in the tomb. So surely their collusion with the guards is solid proof that there was no body in the tomb. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to many. Not only did Jesus prophesy that he would rise and return and that they would see him, as we read earlier, but he returned to many of them. Not just the 12, the 11 surviving disciples. <coughs> in fact, for 40 days he made his presence known throughout the land, it says in Acts chapter 1. The account of the appearance to Mary Magdalene is significant in John 20. The account of the other women who came to the tomb is also significant. And they quickly departed from the tomb with fear and great joy. And actually, Mary Magdalene and Jesus encountered one another there in the garden. Remember, Mary Magdalene thought that he was a gardener. And he did, she didn't realize that he was actually the Christ until he spoke her name. 
<clears throat> he appeared to ten of his disciples in the upper room. And then he again he appeared to the eleventh as well with the other ten, down in Thomas. Then Jesus met with some of the men of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, he's calling out to them, the fishermen, cast your net on the other side. And they did, after a night of all night of not catching any fish. And suddenly their nets were full to the point of breaking. And there were many other proofs. Um, and I do have a list of uh, who Jesus actually appeared to in the scripture reference. If you'd like to have that, please email. I'd like to also point out how the disciples died. That they were persecuted. They were uh, murdered. If, and this is one point I'll abbreviate, if Christ had not risen, what would cause such an incredible change in the disciples' lives? So that in acts that they would proclaim with great energy and power, and 3,000 would be saved that one day. The first uh, sermon delivered by Peter. What were they before? Cowering? In denial? Hiding? In hiding? <coughs> Confused? Yeah. They were misinterpreting things that Jesus was trying to tell them. Oh, boy, how do the same thing? Okay, there's so much more to the story. It's so hard to close. I started out the lesson like I did because I want you to have the heart. I wanted you to see God's heart and I wanted you to be a changed person and have some scriptures to reflect back on after receiving these facts. There really is so much more to the story. If you read evidence of the man's a verdict, just a quick skim. It's very well laid out in the fact of table of contents so you know right where to go. <coughs> it's just astounding. It's astounding that first century officials, Ignatius, Josephus, the historian, uh, Ignatius the saint, uh, called themselves to be eyewitnesses of all these happenings. Uh, they couldn't be everywhere at one place. They weren't with the 12 disciples, 11 disciples. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that they were witnesses of the fervor and the urgency and the outpouring from the disciples. And thousands, 3,000 people being saved at one time in that one day. And then followed by another 5,000 being saved in the next sermon. That's amazing. And there are eyewitnesses to those events. So something incredible has happened. 
in what it was in the words of God to you, the empty tomb and the resurrection. John 1, 1 through 29 and Romans 6, 23 and again, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. <coughs> These are just um, in the last paragraph or so of the third page of your lesson that the Bible says that if Jesus did not overpower death's grip to escape that cold, rocky tomb, he would not be in a position to provide you victory over death. So remember, when you share Christ, not only share the death, the crucifixion, the penalty that he paid for that individual, always remember the cornerstone of our faith, that Christ not only died, but rose again. And he lives forevermore. He lives to intercede for us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not the end of the story, folks. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Revelation 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, speaking of his resurrection. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests, he are high priests, we priests, serving his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, verse 7. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail, will weep. And so it is written, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is? And who was, and who is to come, the Almighty.